Welcome to another episode of the Called Out Cafe. My name is Doug Hooley, and this is episode number 16 in the series titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on the book that I released this past fall by the same title. That book, along with my other two, can be purchased on Amazon.com. And if you can't afford it, you can download a free PDF copy from my website found at DougHooley.com. I've been pretty busy lately with producing several videos. I just published another instructional video this morning, in fact, in my series on the Beast of Revelation and the Antichrist. I think this is the fifth video on the topic. I have a few left to go. And no, I'm not obsessed (laughs) with the Antichrist. I'm just trying to be thorough on a very important topic a topic which there's a great deal of confusion and false teaching over today. False teaching that even today affects the decisions people are making, and not necessarily for the better, if you get what I'm throwing down. You can catch all these videos on my Doug Hooley Ministries YouTube channel. And if you go there, please consider subscribing. Uh, I've also started doing a series of short, unscripted videos a couple times a week called That's All I Got to Say About That. The topics vary, and several so far have had to do about end-time stuff, but not all of them are going to. Uh, they've been running about 10 minutes long. The last one is like eight and a half, you know, so right around there. Again, you can access them on my YouTube channel. The best way not to miss a future episode of That's All I Got to Say About That is to subscribe to the channel, or you can follow me on Facebook and or Twitter. I usually put up there when I have something new to listen or, to or watch. Uh, so yeah, that's all I got to say about that. I kind of want to keep uh, the topics current or answering questions from uh, people that I get uh, making comments on the YouTube channel uh, or things that I'm studying. That's kind of the nature of that. It's, like I say, it's unscripted, and so you kind of just see the raw Doug (laughs) with all his flaws and a quirky sense of humor at times. So this week, we're going to move ahead with Paul's letters as we continue to look at what the New Testament has to say specifically on the topic of what the purpose and function of God's called-out people is supposed to be when they gather. Well, let's start with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, where we find out that Jesus is the head of the ecclesia, the called out. Jesus is figuratively referred to as the head of his ecclesia three times in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 22, we're told that God put all things under Jesus's, quote, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, unquote. Again, that's from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 is kind of on the same thing, and it tells us, quote, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus is the head of all that. And that was an unquote in there somewhere if you didn't get that. And then there's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, the third place where it talks about Jesus as the head of the body. It again informs us that he is the head of the ecclesia and that the ecclesia is in a submissive role to him. This headship of Jesus in the ecclesia is echoed in the book of Colossians. Uh, you'd find that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 10, and uh, also chapter 2, verse 19. So there are no other heads or authoritative leaders. Is it authoritative or authoritative? Uh, take, your, take your pick there. Anyway, there are no other heads in the ecclesia besides Jesus. He alone is in charge and has not given anyone the authority to be Lord over his ecclesia. Important point. <laughs> important thing to get. Because if you start thinking about it, you could probably think of several people in your current or past uh, history that you have uh, had figures or people that seem very much like they're in charge of what's going on in the name of Jesus. Well, this is very similar uh, to when we were going through the book of John. If you haven't listened to the book of John, this, uh, the, this series on the book of John, I, I urge you to do so. But in the book of John, we learn that Jesus is also thought of as the only shepherd of his ecclesia, the only guide, the only trusted protector, the only caretaker. It's the same idea as he is the only head. Very important. Jesus is my boss. He's my master. It's to him only that I am responsible and to him only that I respond to. I mean, at least in theory, right? Moving on in Ephesians, now chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start with verse 10 there in regards to good work. Because there's so much emphasis that's placed on the members of the church to do good works. You know, this is surprising given Paul's words in Philippians regarding all the things Paul said that he had done in his life to acquire righteousness, but that he counted them all as loss. I've been a part of a small group where a great deal of time was spent brainstorming, quote, good works, unquote, projects. Because, as was often said in that church that the small group was a part of, it, meaning our very purpose in life and as a church, is, quote, all about service, unquote. It's all about service. Oh, man, that still makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up. In that church, projects requiring funds had to be written up like a grant proposal and submitted to a committee as a part of an application process. And one requirement to make it through the process, you know, I, as I learned about this stuff, it's just like, Wow, really? Anyway, one requirement was that the project had to have a certain amount of exposure in the community to attract positive attention to the church. In other words, the funds 
which were all designated in the offering for such projects, good works projects, were being used as advertising dollars. But the money wasn't even used for marketing Jesus. It was used to call attention to the church, used to advertise the church. Yeah, I mean, those, I, I am not exaggerating or engaging in hyperbole when I talk about a great deal of time was spent literally brainstorming, sitting there throwing out ideas because good works are so important. It's like, well, what's our, what's our works project going to be this quarter? Uh, one time it was uh, painting a guy's fence. Other times it was serving food at the mission. But what was always the case was this obligation to find a project that our small group to, could do together because it's all about doing good works. Well, this, uh, what I'm going to talk about here, was an all misapplication of the partial verse that I heard quoted often in that church. It's it, All of that emphasis on good works was quite oftentimes based on this. It's that, quote, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The second part of this verse was normally not included. And again, this is uh, Ephesians 2 verse 10 that I'm talking about here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And the second part, normally not included when they're throwing this around. Yet, it is the key to understanding the verse. Here's the second part. It says this, Which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Paul addressed these words to the called out living in Ephesus. He was saying, that if you are counted amongst the elect, the ecclesia, that God has predestined and planned the good works that you will participate in. If you're among the called out, you do not need constant reminders to do good works. You cannot help but do, or like scripture says, walk in them. You don't need to have brainstorming sessions to determine what high-profile community service projects that you can engage in, to paint your church in a positive light so people won't be able to resist attending it. God has foreordained that you will be irresistibly attracted to do things that are good in His sight. You will not be able to help it. Nobody... <laughs> If it's God's will for you to do something, nobody can stop you from doing these good works. So, here's a secret that the pastor who's trying to get you to serve in the church's nursery or teach Sunday school or set up chairs before service or serve on a committee or serve soup to the homeless may not tell you. I'm telling you this secret, which is proclaimed loudly in the book of Ephesians, because it's my sincere hope that you stop feeling guilty and so that you may shed the yoke off your back and replace it with Jesus's light burden. Here it is. Good works take tens of thousands of different forms. The primary good work 
primary, primary, the primary good work is that we are to, quote, walk in, unquote, is what Jesus called the work of God. Here's the primary number one good work that Jesus called the work of God. It's that of believing in the one whom God sent, Jesus. That is a work. It's the act of faith, the act of belief in Jesus. Listen to this from John chapter 6, verses 28 to 29. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Awesome. (laughs) But God has prepared other good works for us to walk in also. They may include providing for your family, disciplining your children, changing diapers, cooking meals, or holding your mother's hand as she is dying. It's a good work to dig a hole to bury your dad's dog in that he's had for years. It's a good work to smile and take the time to listen to a child when you don't feel like it or pick up that piece of trash you accidentally dropped even though no one is watching. A good work may be answering the phone when you know it's that person you really don't want to talk to, but you suspect they need to talk. It may be looking someone in the eye and sincerely thanking them. In today, this current age we're living in, in our culture, it might be something as simple as, quote, liking, unquote, something someone posted so that you uh, know it must mean, because you know it must mean something to them, or you sense that they might be lonely and they're just reaching out. It may mean forgiving people when they've wronged you. Now, I know that these things are not on the same level as organizing a citywide barbecue for the homeless, but they, nonetheless, are good works that God thought to be important enough to preordain them. These are all things that, from our perspective, that we choose to do in our, in our conscious minds as we're walking around the world. We can choose not to do those things, too. Well, actually, God preordained them. We can't choose not to do something he preordained. So then there are also good works that we don't choose, at least consciously. So what I just mentioned are works that you you and I may have a choice in carrying out, at least from our perspective. But God can also work in ways through the called out to bring about his good God's good from his perspective that we may never know about. And this happens constantly. His called out are likely hardly ever aware of all the good works that they walk in every day. Every action we take, regardless how small and how little thought that we put into it, can impact multiple people, multiple situations. Those impacts can set off a chain of events. Now, God is aware of all such impacts. The phenomenon where some minute action in one place can end up through a complex chain of events having a large significant outcome somewhere else is called the butterfly effect. 
There was a movie by that name a few years back. Interesting movie. It's only our omnipotent sovereign God who can possibly use us in such ways like that to bring about his will, his good. Then there are all the things that the called out will do or not do that are simply the opposite of doing evil. This is like the third type of good work here that I've listed for you. The first were things that we kind of we think that we're choosing to do. The second are things we're not even aware of. And this, the third category I'm going to lay out here, are things that are like uh, the act of not doing evil, <laughs> right? By just doing the right thing. They're, they, you know, they're also completely good works. God has written it in the script for his called out to try not to lie, try not to get drunk or commit adultery, steal, or react with sarcasm when it would make somebody feel bad, you know, those kind of things. It may be that doing a good work means not putting yourself first or calling attention to yourself and allowing someone else to get the credit for something. As routine and regular as all these things may be, they are all examples of good works for those who are in Christ Jesus. Disappointingly, <laughs> I once heard a pastor of a large works-based church comment on such routine good works. He said, such routine good works are only a start. I, I'm just going to say that is an untrue, anti, not only unbiblical, but anti-biblical and very burdensome statement intended to impose guilt. Guilt is a common, what I call, Christian Jedi mind trick done by a Christian Jedi master. But hear this. Walking in the works which God has preordained for you to walk in is the start and finish of what He considers to be good. Paul wrote more about good works in his letter to Titus. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. He wrote, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. As the ecclesia waits in hope, you know, the well-founded, confident expectation for the return of Jesus, God continues to call out and redeem his special people, who he has appointed to walk in the good works that he has foreordained, as opposed to the evil people Paul had just written about. Zealous for good works is better translated zealous for doing good. Why zealous? Well, hear me here. It's not because they had been preached into believing that doing good works was the right thing to do and they'd get some kind of points for doing it. You know, they've been beaten over the head week after week, sermon after sermon, to do good works. 
But it's because it was intrinsically a part of being appointed and enabled to do them by God's Holy Spirit, according to God's perfect will that he decided upon before the foundations of the earth were laid. Well, Paul goes on to tell Titus that those who are called by God should be careful to continue doing good, since doing good is profitable to men. He closes his letter to Titus with an insightful and clarifying statement. This is what it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people also learn to continue to do good, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. This is an encouragement to be the good Samaritan. It means to respond in love when God puts an urgent need in front of our face or in our path. What does this mean for the called out who want to operate according to biblical principles and not tradition? How should they, how should we respond as a group? Well, that's up to the Holy Spirit as urgent needs arise. It's not up to a church's outreach committee or a single guy, the pastor. You know, if you watch the news after a natural disaster, there is no shortage of compassionate and organic responses to crisis. Well, let's move on and talk about the mysterious purpose of the ecclesia. There's another purpose of the ecclesia which is extremely important to Yahweh, the Most High God. And Paul wrote of it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. It pertains to the narrative in God's story which most Christians may not even be aware of. This great purpose of the ecclesia requires no action on its part. It's something that God himself is accomplishing every time his son takes possession of another called out one that he's paid for with his blood. Paul wrote that by revelation, God made the mystery known to him. A mystery that's been a part of God's plan since the beginning of the world. That mystery is that the Gentiles most of us who are listening, should be fellow eternal heirs in God's family along with the Jews, the physical nation of Israel, the chosen people, the apple of God's eye. This mystery was made possible because of the work Jesus accomplished when he was here for the first time a couple thousand years ago. So what does the ecclesia have to do with this mystery? Well, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11 says this, in part, So that through the ecclesia, the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Most called out ones today have lost their entire biblical worldview regarding what takes place in the heavenly, unseen spirit realm. At, at best, they might just not know what to think about it. So, this might sound completely foreign to you. If you haven't done so, might I suggest listening to my past podcast series on the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. I also produced a couple videos on the biblical history of the unseen spirit realm. I cannot stress enough how important this topic is to understanding, understanding a major 
storyline in the Bible. It's a storyline that parallels and is a part of the gospel, a storyline that magnifies the importance of the gospel. It adds a whole other dimension to the gospel. Now, people are always saying, ah, don't study this or that because it distracts you from the gospel. I'm telling you, it, it all relates back to the gospel. And you are just never going to have as complete a picture of what Jesus accomplished if you don't understand what I'm talking about here. Anyway, it took me weeks to cover the topic, so you're just going to have to go back and listen to it or watch those videos to get a taste of it. It is seriously, once you get onto it, it is mind-blowing what's been going on behind the scenes uh, of planet Earth's history. So, in short, for now, okay, around the time of the Tower of Babel incident recorded in Genesis chapter 10, God disinherited or gave away all the nations and placed them under the authority of several regional spiritual beings who Paul refers to here in Ephesians as rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God chose and kept only the descendants of Jacob or Israel for himself. The spiritual, regional, quote, rulers and authorities, unquote, that Paul was talking about, failed miserably to direct people's love and devotion to Yahweh. They failed to provide justice and care for those who were in need. The mystery that Paul wrote of is that in the future, the nations, including Israel, will be reunited under one authority and ruler. That is King Jesus when he returns. When Jesus has placed all his enemies under his feet, he'll present all the nations previously disinherited back to his father. This reuniting of the nations has been not only a mystery to humans previously, but to those authorities and powers in the heavenly places. God is using the ecclesia to make this mystery known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, one called out person at a time, making known the individual mortal humans whom he's elected to salvation as Jesus goes in there and plucks them out of the territories of these regional princes, powers, and authorities. Those who are ransomed by Jesus or called out from the Gentile nations are still under the authority of those regional rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm as far as the earth goes, you know, what we're obligated to on this earth. The regional princes, who are all a part of Satan's larger kingdom, believe the people of their nations are their own subjects and possessions. Yet, according to the plan laid out before the world was created, this mystery, Jesus has called out individuals for his own kingdom from the kingdom of Satan. We are called out, we are ecclesiaed from the kingdom of Satan. The message is clear to the princes, powers, rulers, and authorities of the unseen realm of what's in store, and there's nothing they can do about it. That's all a part of the defeat of Satan when Jesus was here previously. However, 
he left them still in charge of this earth while he's gone. When he comes back, that will no longer be the case. Their time of being in authority is running out. Jesus has been placed in authority over them. He can purchase anyone out of their kingdom who his father has elected to salvation at any time. The, the regional princes and powers and authorities, they gotta hate it when that happens. Okay, moving on now. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 to 16 is rich in the components of what the ecclesia exists for and how it's to function. Here's a breakdown of the passage. This is what it says. And he, Jesus, himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did he call only some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? To help accomplish what follows in the next line. That's what the ne- this is what the next line says. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Equipping the saints includes increasing their belief the faith, by equipping them with knowledge and understanding of the only one that they are following, Jesus. As the called out look forward in hope of the return of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom, and finally they live in unity under his rule. This is the next line. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Increasing faith, living in hope and unity, while being careful to guard the beliefs and integrity of the ecclesia while we await his return. Next line, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And we're doing all of this stuff that Paul's talking about while we abide in love for others in the ecclesia. Listen to this last part. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I kind of diced that up pretty good there, but I, so I urge you to go back and read that whole thing, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. But um, what I was doing there is I was illustrating how it's talking about faith and hope and unity and love all in that one package. It's like the, uh, what I call the prime directive. You know, we see that again. Uh, what Paul's also doing there is he is letting us know why we have different parts of the body within the ecclesia. It's to equip its members so that their belief may be based in truth. And that's to continue until the called out are united when Jesus returns. And until that time, we're to be on guard against deception. And finally, we're told that it is the effective working of every part of the ecclesia, not just one or a few individual individual members, and edifying itself in love, which causes growth and maturity in the faith. 
This passage defines what real growth is in the ecclesia. There's no mention of growth, meaning the number of attendant of attendees, the services the church provides to the community, or how much money is collected on Sunday. Well, you know, with that kind of uh, note, <laughs> that seems to be plenty of in, in uh, the past few podcasts, we're going to wrap it up. And that wraps up what Paul said in his letter to the Ephesians regarding the gathering of the ecclesia. Next time, we will pick it back up with Paul's letter to the Philippians. And until then, may God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.